Uh, please take your scriptures and open to Matthew chapter 7. On the home stretch, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the first six verses of that chapter. Before we dive in, won't you please uh, bow and pray with me? Lord, who am I to begin to imagine that I can expound on your greatest teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount? But I pray, Spirit, that you will work through me, through these feeble words, into the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The Great Awakening, <clears throat> Charles Swindoll recounts an experience he once had while he was at a Bible conference. He was the main speaker, and on the first night, he briefly met a couple that seemed to be friendly and glad to be there. However, as the week went on, Swindoll noticed that roughly about 10 minutes into each of his talks, the man was fast asleep. This began to irritate Swindoll over the, over the days. And by the time of the final meeting, he was convinced that this man was dragged there by his wife and that he was, in his words, a carnal Christian. As the, at the conclusion of the seminar, the, the wife asked if she could speak to him. And she went up to him and Charles thought that she was going to talk to him about the husband's obvious lack of interest. However, she explained that her husband had terminal cancer. And as one of his final wishes, he wanted to come and to this Bible conference to hear his favorite Bible teacher, Charles Swindoll. He, she said in her own words, he loves the Lord and you're his favorite Bible teacher. He wanted to be here and meet you and hear you no matter what. Charles Swindoll writes, I stood there all alone, deeply rebuked as I've ever been. Have you ever felt that way? You were misjudged something terribly? Have you ever misjudged someone terribly, a situation? Have you ever felt that deep rebuke once you realize the truth? I think we've all had that experience, shades of that experience in one way or another, because we all have a part of our heart that is terribly judgmental. We all have a piece of our heart that judges continually. A heart that judges people either with wrong information, like Swindoll, or more commonly, holds people to such a high standard and to such an extent that over time you become hypercritical. Well, if any of this rings a bell to you, 
I know it did to me this week. If any of this rings a bell to you, Jesus wants to address our hearts this morning on this. So look with me at chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be the measure that God will use to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not the dog do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. There's no easy way to sum up or or to 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 distill down the the sermon on the mount. But in general what we've been seeing is a progression in Jesus's teaching. In chapter 5 if you will, and we'll just break it down by chapters. In chapter 5, you have an emphasis on this new kingdom coming. The the dwellers of the new kingdom, the beatitudes, the nature of the kingdom, what it looks like. In chapter 6, there's a there's a clear emphasis on how we are to live in this new kingdom, right? And there's also an emphasis on the fatherhood of God. If you want to reread that chapter, you see over and over again, he is calling him, he's calling God the Father, which is a new concept to the Jews. And then in chapter 7, we notice Jesus turning his attention to something else, another theme that he wants to, to, to unpack. And that theme is judgment. And we see that in chapter 7. He'll go on to point out that there are two ways, a, a, a wide way and a narrow way. And the wide path leads to judgment. He'll, take, he'll talk to us about a tree that is bearing bad fruit. And that tree will be judged harshly. He's going to then go on to give us one of his hardest teachings, actually. One of his hardest teachings about the disappointment of some on the day of final judgment. He's going to speak to us about the judgment that comes as a result of building your your house, your hopes, on sand instead of on the rock, instead of on him. But here Jesus wants to turn the spotlight on our hearts first. He's kind of preparing us for this experience expansive teaching on judgment. He's preparing our hearts. So he turns the spotlight on, our, on us, on the way we judge one another. And he wants us to understand that there's a fine line, but there is a line, but it's a fine line between right judgment and judgmentalism. There's a line between judging rightly and judgmentalism. Cal Thomas wrote in the Washington Times, there's a fine line between judgment, holding people accountable to the standard we did not create, and judgmentalism, thinking ourselves morally superior because we haven't committed the acts of some. 
And that is the fine line that Jesus wants us to understand. The act of judging is not wrong, but judgmentalism is. Now, judgmentalism is being hypercritical of others. It's judging in the final condemning sense. It's kind of sitting in the seat of, of God when, when talking about other people. Is ultimately hypocritical, as, as he says in, in verse 5. You hypocrite. It is usurping the seat that only God has the right to sit in. The word used here for, for judge is, is borrowed, that vocabulary is borrowed from the legal realm of the time. And it, it has to do with the type of judgment where a gavel comes down and, and gives sentence. Author James Sennett wrote this, and that, that's the type of judgment that is crushing to a person, right? That condemning type of judgment. And author James Sennett writes this, maybe many babes in Christ die in infancy because of their inability to live up to the impossible standards which are thrown upon them by other more, more mature believers who so often fall short of those standards themselves. Our judgment can be crushing to others. That's the kind of judgment that Jesus has in mind when he says, judge not. That's what Jesus has in mind, that type of judgment. Judge not that you may not be judged. The parallel passage that that we have in Luke chapter 6 says this, do not judge or you will, uh, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. So there's that parallel between this type of judging that, that Jesus is talking about and a condemningness, condemnation. It is a condemning type of judgment that Jesus is denouncing here. It is the judging people based on appearance, on personal standards, on how, how you dress, on how clean you are, on how you speak on how intelligent you think the other person is. Or if they believe the way you believe. If they believe politically the way you believe. Belonging to the right social group. Prescribing, subscribing to the right ideology. The right theology. Or how about, you know, just cutting to the chase subscribing to the right standards that you think others should live up to regarding COVID. I mean, this whole COVID crisis is, is a whole new pasture that is opened for judgmentalism. Unless a person believes right in line with how you do regarding how a person should act, regarding social distancing, or eating in restaurants or not eating in restaurants, or wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, or where you wear a mask, or even what kind of mask you wear. I was with a person this week who, who rolled their eyes at a person wearing a bandana because they thought that that didn't quite meet the specs of COVID. It wasn't safe enough. Judgmentalism happens almost Instantly, doesn't it? 
That's the type of judgment that, that Jesus is prohibiting here. Judge not that you not be judged. I think it has to be said, and we have to be careful at this point, because we could easily throw the baby out with the bathwater here. And, and we'll talk about this in a minute. That's largely what we have done. Because we have to be very clear here. Jesus is talking about a judgmental spirit. Not that you can't judge. He's not prohibiting judging. As Mark Ross says in his commentary, this verse is the most quoted verse in the Sermon on the Mount and might possibly be the most misunderstood. And I I totally agree with that. Because when the most quoted verse, the most quoted verse here, people think that it means the absence of any type of right judgment at all. It means that you don't have the right to discern between what is moral and immoral, what is right and wrong, what is godly behavior and what is ungodly behavior. You probably have encountered this when, when you speak up about any moral issue, right? When you, when you stand on the side of, of Christ on any moral issue. If you, if you dare to, to, even in the slightest sense, talk about the immorality of the homosexual lifestyle or gay marriage or transgender, if you ever enter into that, you'll probably hear some of the next words quoted is this verse. Judge not lest you be judged. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, the current popular notion that judging others is in itself a sin leads to such inappropriate maxims as I'm okay, you're okay. It encourages a, a conspiracy of moral indifference. Think, listen to that. It encourages a conspiracy of moral indifference which says, if you never tell me anything I'm doing wrong, I'll never tell you anything you're doing wrong. And brothers and sisters, this has crept into the Christian community. It really has. I mean, when's the last time a brother or sister came up to you and, and put his, his or her arm around you and said, I, I just want to talk to you about something, and then goes on to talk to you about a way in which you have, you have worded something that was hurtful, or maybe even a sin that they have seen in your life? Not very often. If you're thinking about speaking into someone's life where sin is concerned, you might even hear yourself saying this very verse. You shouldn't do that. Judge not lest you be judged. So we're tempted to never, ever, ever speak about a speck in somebody else's eye. And that's a tragedy. The movie Chocolat tells how a mysterious woman moves into a little uptight French town, if you've ever seen this movie, and opens up a chocolate shop. Her chocolate is used to bring kind of a, of a freedom to this town, a joy from the repressed and guilt-ridden people there. In a newspaper interview, one of the stars of that film, Lena Olin, summed up the movie this way. This is how she summed up that movie. Don't judge. 
Try to embrace instead of reject. Try to accept rather than deny people the right to be themselves. That's all this film is saying. What's wrong with that? Jesus would say there's a lot wrong with that. You literally cannot read through Scripture and come to the conclusion that you should not judge. You can't read through the Bible. You can't lean on this one verse, misinterpreted, and and throw all the rest out. I mean, just look at it in our context today. Just in this context, look down at at verse 5. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying, yes, there's still a judgment to be made that there is a speck in the brother's eye. Look at, look at verse 6. Do not give the dogs what is holy. Do not throw the pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. In order not to give the dogs and the pigs those things, you have to, first of all, know what is sacred and not sacred. There's a judgment there. And then, however hard it is to hear and even say, you have to make a judgment on who are dogs and pigs. Just in this context. Going to the greater Mathean context, if you look a few verses down in verse 15, we're called to judge false prophets. That person is a false prophet. That person is not preaching the gospel correctly. That person is warping the gospel. Matthew 18:15, we read, if your brother sins against you, go him, show him his fault, just between the two of you. This requires a judgment. A right judgment that your brother has sinned against you. In the context of the New Testament, we're called to make judgments all the time. 1 Corinthians 5, we see there that Paul is is asking, imploring even, the Corinthian church to make a judgment call on this man who is sleeping with his stepmother. Expel him, he says. God will judge the outside. You're to judge the inside. Ephesians 15 teaches us how to present our judgments. That was one of our memory verses last last year. Speaking the truth in love. That's how we're to, to approach a brother or sister. With truth, there's a speck, but with love, arm around. 1 Timothy 5.20, Paul tells us, For those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may also stand in fear. That requires that we judge that there's a persistent sin going on. And Jesus tells us very frankly in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, which is what he's saying here, but judge with right judgment. And that's what he's trying to teach us here how to judge rightly, how to do it well. But what gets in our way is our sinful nature because we take right judgment and sin warps it into judgmentalism. We turn caring for someone caught in sin into a club to beat them with. We use other people's specs as camouflage 
for our own sin. Or if I never tell him about his, he'll never tell me about mine. We use other people's sin to feed our own superiority sometimes, don't we? Better than that person. I didn't do that. So we warp making right judgments into judgmentalism. So what Jesus does in the rest of the text is what he wants to do is he wants to temper that judgmentalism. He wants to temper that. And what, what I mean by temper is tempering can actually be a process that goes two ways. You can, you can temper something and make it harder, like you do with steel, heating and cooling, heating, cooling, heating, cooling, makes it harder and stronger. But as Macmillan's Dictionary says, you can temper something by making and make it become less strong or less extreme by adding something of the opposite that has the opposite effect. By adding something that has the opposite effect. You can make something softer by adding something that has the opposite effect. And Jesus adds two things here for our consideration, for us to keep in mind so that it softens our judgmentalism and we can judge rightly. And the first one is we have to keep the final judgment in mind. Keep the final judgment in mind. Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, however much I want to sugarcoat this, however much I want to soften what Jesus says here, there's, there's, there's really no way to sugarcoat what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is what he is doing here is he is giving us a pretty large dose of the fear of God. He's giving us a large dose of the fear of God. Jesus wants us to keep in mind that how you approach your brother or sister when they have sin in their life is important. How you approach them has, has big effects on you. Because how you handle that is how God is going to handle you. How you approach them is going to be the approach that God takes towards you. And keeping this in mind, it should temper your judgmentalism. When you keep the final judgment that he's saying here in mind, it should soften you. Because I was preparing to preach this, my awareness of my own judgmentalism was so high this week. How harsh I am momentarily, you know, towards people. How, how my mind instantly makes those, those judgments all the time. You know, on my wife, on my children, on my congregation, on people in the community. I mean, the Lord brought to mind uh, this week as I was preparing this, how I sit in my office sometimes and, and people come in and they're in need, right? They need, their electricity is going to be turned off. They're, they're out of fuel and it's January. How, how they, they need help in order to survive. And I sit there in my 
inane wisdom, and I look at them and I go, why are you spending money on an, the latest iPhone? And, and, I, and I, my olfactory glands are going, going on overdrive smelling the, the smoke that is on their clothes. And I go, how can you, in my mind, how can you come and ask for this money when you're spending things on what I think is frivolous things, unnecessary things? How dark is my heart? And how hard it is to write that check sometimes. And what Jesus is saying here is the standard, Blake, that you use, that's going to be the tone. And that's a hard teaching. And this is scary teaching. And it should be scary. Jesus intends it to heighten our awareness of the fear of God. That's why it's here. Kent Hughes writes, we need to face and apply this text with all its fearful force. And it is fearful, brothers and sisters. But what does this mean for you and I who have placed our trust in, in Jesus at the final judgment? That's the question that comes to mind, right? Okay, what does that mean? As I understand the final judgment, as I read scripture as best I can and understand it, there are two stages, so to speak, if you will, if we're thinking linearly, of the final judgment. There's going to be that Matthew 25, sheep and goats judgment, right? Where God will separate the sheep from the goats. The goats who have not placed their trust in Jesus will go to eternal damnation. And, and those who have placed their trust in Jesus and what Jesus has done for them on the cross and accepted the forgiveness and peace that is there, the sheep will be, will be ushered into heaven. But then there's, there seems to be a, a, a time when each believer will come before Christ and will stand before him to receive their reward. 2 Corinthians 5 uh, talks about this when he says, for we must, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's talking to brothers and sisters so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, a person's work will be shown for what it is, because the day, capital D, meaning the judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each man's work. You know, I could go on, Romans 8, Revelation 13, Revelation 20, there seems to be this, where we all give an account. And there, God will judge us, not salvifically, but on how we judge others. As Kent Hughes frames it, he says, the tone of our life will be the tone of our judgment. And that's, for me, working through this, that that created... Fear doesn't mean that you and I will be disqualified from heaven. That does not what that means. But judgmentalism eviscerates our reward to an extent. Judgmentalism erodes 
the work that you've done. Whereas 1 Corinthians 3.15 puts it, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Seems to be what that is saying. And this is a fearful thing to consider. And Jesus means it to, to stop us up short. To really make us reflect on, on how we're living our life. Not outwardly with the smiles, but inwardly. With the thought life. With your heart. With your mouth. But I want to encourage you. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. Now, some of you may, might have been brought up in homes where there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of terror. Or in churches where there were, the fear was the basis for, for everything. We all have baggage. We all have baggage where fear of the Lord is concerned. We all bring that, the bad experiences to bear when we're thinking about the fear of the Lord to some degree or another. But scripture teaches us that it is a good thing. It's a good thing to keep in mind. Proverbs 14 tells us that fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Luke 1 teaches us that fear of the Lord produces mercy. Isn't that great? That's exactly what we need where judgmentalism is concerned. It produces mercy. Proverbs 3 tells us that it helps us to turn away from evil. And of course, Psalm 111 famously tells us that it is the beginning of wisdom. Fear should never, ever, ever dominate your relationship with with the Lord. It shouldn't dominate it. But it should be a part of it. It should be an ingredient in it. Like baking powder, a critical ingredient if you want that cake to rise. Because fear of the Lord has a strong influence in our lives, doesn't it? It helps guide us. helps us make right decisions. It helps temper us in many ways, including here with judgmentalism. Keeping that truth before us, brothers and sisters, should soften your heart. Make verse 2 something that you keep before you as you're encountering the world, as you're encountering brothers and sisters as you're encountering your spouse and your children and those closest to you whom sometimes we judge most harshly. But ultimately what this verse should do is is turn us to the gospel, right? Because none of us judge correctly. None of us to the person judges correctly. We all fall short of the glory of God in this way. And the gospel is our only hope. It's the only thing that will change your hearts. It's the only thing that will change your judgmental spirit. That part of your heart that is always doing that. Because we can't say, I'll do better. We just can't say that. What the gospel asks you to do is to say, that's who I am. That's a real part of who Blake is. I can't change myself, Lord, but you can. I can't do this. I can't white-knuckle it. I can't stop my mind, but you can. You can do that. 
And we can pray, Lord, help remind me of how far short I fall before I approach a brother or sister. And that's the second ingredient that Jesus wants us to keep in mind, actually. We have to keep our own sin in mind. First, consider the final judgment, but secondly, keep your own sin in mind. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. This is what Jesus is saying here. Why do you say, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is this log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That is what here Jesus gives us a process to go through that helps us temper our judgmentalism and judge rightly. First, first see the log that is in your own eye. Kent Hughes says we find it so easy to turn the microscope on another person's sin while we look at our own sin through the opposite end of a telescope. Have you ever looked at the opposite end of the telescope? Everything looks so far away. That's what Jesus is saying here. Turn the microscope on your life first before you go to a brother or sister. Consider your own. Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse you have, who have passed judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Examine your own life. Examine your own heart. Examine, think back on how you use your tongue. Think back on your thought life. Spend time reflecting on 1 Timothy 5.24. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind. That, that verse has always caught my, my imagination. Because it's so easy to look at, at other people and see their sins, but not even notice your own. So, you know, ask yourself, what sins are in your own life that are obvious, that, are make, that maybe other people see? But then ask this question. What sins in my life are not so obvious? What, Lord, help me see the blind spots in my own life. Because I know they're huge and gaping. Ask the Lord to reveal those to you and consider your own log-like sins. So first... Find the log in your own eye. Then he says, remove the log. That's the second step, meaning repent. So you you just don't stop with, here's my sin. No, the Lord wants you to remove it. How do you remove sin in your life? How do you, what, what are we called to do? We're called to repent. Confess and repent your sin, of your sin. Spend time in confession and repentance. That's actually the way that God has ordained it to change your heart. Not just saying, oh, Blake, I am, I'm judgmental. That's, that's psychology. God calls us to go, Blake, you're terribly judgmental. Jesus, I confess that I am judgmental. 
I can't help that I'm judgmental. I can't stop that I'm judgmental. Please forgive me. That's when the gospel is activated in your life. Third, see the speck in your brother's eye. Now you're ready to approach your brother or sister. You've tempered your own heart. You've humbled, you've been humbled by your own sin, hopefully. You see their sin not as making you puffed up. You're ready now to give mercy instead of judgment. You're ready to point them to the gospel, not towards works. In other words, you can approach them as a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's where you need to be. That's where I need to be. And then fourth, you remove the brother's speck. You help the brother or sister through their sin. Matthew 18:16 says, If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. See, keeping your sin before your eyes is a softening, tempering agent. And he's calling us to do that. It is good to reflect on your own depravity. It is good. It's good to keep in mind your judgmental spirit and repent of that. It's good to spend time, spend time in confession and repentance. It is spiritually healthy to pray David's prayer in in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Brothers and sisters, I, I ask you to pray that prayer this week that he may reveal in you what maybe you don't even know is there. It is spiritually healthy to examine the log in your own eye because it makes us realize, it should make us realize how great the forgiveness we've been given in Jesus Christ. That's where a biblical Christian goes when they see sin in their life. They don't go towards, I'll do better. They don't go towards self-help. They don't go towards ignoring, shoving it under the rug. You go towards Christ. Because he is the forgiver of all of this. Christ was not born just to be an example of how to live, but to live the perfect life, to earn the right to be the perfect sacrifice. And that perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, he went to the cross. He didn't go to the cross to die as a martyr so that we could feel sorry for him. But as a substitutionary death for you and me, taking the punishment for your and my sins, for your and my judgmentalism. He was willing to be judged for our judgmentalism. And God poured out his wrath that should have been ours on him. And he rose from the dead three days later, conquering death and Satan and the power of sin in our lives. Do you realize that? The power of sin is broken. We have the ability now with the Spirit to say yes to godliness, as Timothy's. He's reading Timothy. And if you place your trust in Jesus, he not only offers eternal life, which is, which is enough, 
but he offers forgiveness for your sins, forgiveness for your judgmentalism. You see, a part of the spiritual maturity is actually understanding that your sin debt is bigger than you think. Let me repeat that. Part of becoming mature in Christ, growing in Christ, is actually understanding your sin goes deeper than you think. That's part of growth in Christ. That your need for forgiveness is greater than you thought. That what Jesus did on the cross was greater than you could have imagined. And as you meditate on that, it tempers your judgmental heart. It makes you actually more loving, more forgiving, more merciful. And perhaps that's why the Holy Spirit preserved for us that story in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus is invited to the, the Pharisee's house named Simon, and he's sitting there and reclining, and there's that woman that comes in who the whole town knows as this, this harlot, this, this sinful woman, and she breaks this alabaster perfume on, on, his, on his head, and she, she then goes to his feet, and she's weeping. And she's taking her hair and drying his feet. And Simon, the Pharisee, is aghast. That's us. That, by the way, that's our role in this story. That's how we react. He's aghast. How could Jesus let this sinful woman even touch him, he thinks. So Jesus, being Jesus, says to Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon then outwardly asks, uh, is very humble, kind of how we, this is how we are, terribly judgmental, very humble on the outside. Teach me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt. You have judged correctly, Jesus says. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at that, he turned to the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Do you want to temper your judgmentalness? Do you want to be able to approach your brother and sister in love and not anger? in humility and not superiority? Do you want your cardiology to match your theology? Realize that you have logs in your eyes that you've been forgiven of. Realize that you have logs in your eyes that you've been forgiven of. Listen to what St. Clair Ferguson says in conclusion. The heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness 
will always be restrained in its judgment of others. It has seen itself deserving judgment and condemnation before the Lord, and yet, instead of experiencing his burning anger, has tasted his infinite mercy. For he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I ask you, Lord, to temper each one of our hearts. Help us to proceed in humility and mercy. Change our thought life. Change that part of our hearts that is always producing the judgments that we think. Change us, Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.